This is Sound Heights Records Podcast, Session 6. And the song lyric of the day is by Martin Dosh and Andrew Bird. We've watched the ending where you'll find The part where you forget your line If life's a race, you surely won Our lives a number, 41 You stay here soaking in a brine Inauspiciously supine If life's a race, you surely won Our lives a number, 41 Yes, I hear you, and I understand. I'll be looking for you throughout the show. Welcome to the Sound Heights Records Podcast. Harmonizing life and music, growing as an artist, improving as a person, gaining insight and inspiration conversations with world-class musicians. All right, <laughs> welcome back to Sound Heights Records Podcast. This is Yisrael Arye. Today I'm very excited to have a special guest interview. It's actually another interview I did a year ago um, with a extremely inspired and accomplished musician who happens to be an old friend of mine um, from my college days, Martin Dash, uh, plays by the name of Dash. Uh, if you check out any of his records on the Anticon label, and he's released a lot of music on his own, as well as been a major part of uh, a number of Andrew Bird's uh, productions, uh, you're in for a real treat if you haven't checked it out before. Dash is, is quite a unique musical force. I first got to know him as a drummer, and back then, this was mid-90s, mid-late 90s in New Paltz, New York. I was in the jazz program there. He was living around the area and, and playing, and something about his drumming was otherworldly, I have to say. Um, and then it didn't surprise me a few years later when he started coming out with with these really amazing records, mostly instrumental, a lot of sound collage, funky, angular grooves, a lot of surreal noise, amazing stuff. Dash has been a major influence, musical influence on me personally, and I know I'm not the only one. Before I get into this interview, I just want to mention that I, I dug up some old recordings from the days when uh, Dash and I would jam in, in my basement. We played a few gigs together as well. He actually played a, a recital of mine at the music school. So as a special incentive and also a thank you to uh, our Patreon supporters for supporting this and all of our episodes and our musical productions, I'm going to post a couple of those old recordings. Um, I touched them up a little bit. They're, they're pretty lo-fi but they really show someone who has become, I believe, a, a legendary musical figure in some in an earlier stage, just jamming in a basement, incredible drumming. Um, 
So you could check that out by going to uh, patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords. The conversation that we had really spanned a wide range of aspects of him and his playing and his views on music, uh, starting with his background and his early influences to some technical aspects of his art that I was really interested in, to the way he balances life and music. He's a truly humble individual, and it was really a pleasure to talk to him. So without further delay, here's our interview with Dodge. I took piano lessons for the first time when I was a kid, so starting at like age six. I took piano lessons for probably, I don't know, maybe like five years, until I was maybe like 11. Um, and then I kind of gave up on piano just because I didn't really like the practice. And um, But apparently like when I was really little, I, I wanted to take piano lessons like from the age of like three. And so I begged my parents, you know, they couldn't really afford it. And so like, well, if you still want to take piano lessons when you're six, then you can start taking them. And so I did. And uh, I was okay, you know, not, not great, but, you know, but I think by the time I was like 11, I just wasn't that into, like I said, practicing and just the whole, you know, doing recitals and stuff like that. Mm. Um, These were like classical, so like, eh. classical lessons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and so then I kind of put that on the shelf, and I got really into actually listening to music, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I was really obsessed with like, uh, sorry, my dog's barking here. Um, I got obsessed with like listening to FM radio mm-hmm. because back in, this would have been like 1980, I don't know, 82, 83, 84, um, the sort of FM radio, like top 40 kind of stuff was very, very different than what it is now as, as far as being like diverse. You know, you could have like, you know, Michael Jackson, The Cars, Devo, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, Prince, you know, all these different kinds of music were all sort of in the same thing mm-hmm. or in the same format. And so I just would listen to the radio and make tapes and like, you know, wait for my song that I heard to come on and hit record. And so I started making all these mixtapes and I was like, maybe like 11. I could listen back to tunes that I liked, whatever. And then that, that sort of morphed into like, you know, starting to buy records and stuff. And I was like, maybe about 12 or 13. Were you, were you a TV kid? Were you, were you plugged into MTV? Um, not right away, no. Because my parents they were pretty strict about how much TV I could watch. Maybe until I was like 14. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really get to experience that unless I went like to stay at a friend's house. But they used to have a thing on... Uh, network TV called Friday Night Videos. Uh-huh. I said, I don't know if it was on like NBC or CBS or one of the, it was one of the main three networks, but it was on every Friday night from like 10 until midnight. And so oftentimes I would try to like, you know, have a sleepover at a friend's house on a Friday night so we could stay and watch it. And that was basically like MTV. They would put the same videos that were on MTV. So that was definitely part of the, part of the thing. Um, but now I'd say the main, the main thing I think you're fortunate in that regard. I mean, uh, experiencing, I mean, I, you know, I grew up with that same 
you know, stuff, um, I, I probably had a different take on it because it was for me the whole association was this vis very visual. So you know, for most of that music, it was it was like very much yeah. connected with those videos. I didn't I didn't catch it. You know, what I mean, it wasn't it was like I, it was hard for me to dissociate it from <laughs> from the videos. So that you know, um, probably the, if I'd heard the music in in a vacuum without that, I imagine I might have um, felt it in a different way, you know. But I, I, yeah, I think, anyway, I think you're... Oh, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you, you were saying, so then, yeah. um, so you're, you know, listening to a lot of FM radio, starting to buy records. Yeah, yep, starting to buy records, and then like, when I first year in high school, so I'd have been like 15 or so. Um, uh, I was hanging out with my friend at his house. I was staying over at my friend's house out in the uh, suburbs of Minneapolis. And he had a drum set. And I never really had a chance to see anybody play a drum set up close or sit behind a drum set and play. So, you know, he was like, out, man. I had a drum set last year. And he sits down and plays like the Ringo Starr beat. And I was like, holy mm. cow, this is really cool. And so, you know, I watched him play for a while and I got I sat down behind the kit and it was just sort of like this magical moment of like, this is what I need to do. <laughs> like I just sort of knew like at that moment, I was like, I have to somehow figure out how to get one of these drum sets in my house. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, you know, from that point on, I was sort of obsessed with that. Um, I told my parents, you know, that year, I was like, you know, what do you want for Christmas? You know, 15? I was like, I really, really, really want a drum set. And I just assumed that our parents wouldn't be able to get me one because they're not that cheap and we didn't have a lot of money when, when I was growing up. But then, lo and behold, they bought me a drum set for Christmas. And so, and then proceeded to, like, you know, put up with me playing, you know, by myself with friends coming over to the house for the next, the next two years. Mm. Um, I'm with Simon's back. It's amazing. Well, and so what were you, what were you, yeah, what was yeah. your, so the drum, in terms of drumming, what was your, your initial, so what, what are those tracks that you were listening I mean, to, was, was, like, made you want to play those beats? Yeah, so that's basically how I taught myself, so I mean, I would, uh, I had a paper route, and I worked in a couple of different, uh, baseball card stores, and I was in junior high, um, so I had a little bit of money saved up, uh, not that much, but enough to buy a stereo. And so I bought this like pretty awesome, for, it was like one of the earlier stereos that had a CD player in it. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of running CDs came out to like 84, 85, somewhere in there. Um, and I would, you know, I, I basically bought a bunch of records that I liked, CD. I don't know, like, I guess at that point it was kind of really classic rock kind of stuff. I knew a lot of um, Led Zeppelin. Jimi Hendrix, uh, like Rush, and Yes, and those four. Maybe the first Boston record I could listen to that quite a bit. Um, but I basically set up the stereo in the basement with my drum set with these two speakers, uh, you know, like, you know, two feet from either side of my head, mm -hmm. <laughs> and just like blast these tunes. Uh, and then play drums along with them, trying to copy the parts. And I, was, I had a CD player, so I could just, you know, scroll back 
the beginning of the song. Yeah. I didn't get the intro right. Um, but that's basically how I taught myself is by trying to learn that stuff. But yeah, most, mostly classic rock and some prog rock. Kind of Pink Floyd, too. Um, yeah. Pro- okay, I, yeah, I, I, I never... Again, like I said, I... Associated you with the, the prog rock, some... <laughs> Picture with some some roto toms. Like, oh yeah, with man. A bandana, no, it, it, you know. I mean, I listen to everything, yeah, you know. Yeah. But yeah, it's I. <laughs> no, the, the Yes album is like one of the ones that, that's. I mean, it is prog rock, but it's not really. If you listen to the Yes album, it's like you know, it's just, I don't know. I think it came out like in '69 or Fra- something. Fragile. And it's not. Uh, the Yes album. Oh, the Yes album. Okay. It's, yeah, it's the one before Fragile. So. Is that is that the one um, with uh, Roundabout? Uh, no, Roundabout's on Fragile. Okay. The Yes album has like uh, Starship Trooper. Um, what else is on that? Yours is No Disgrace. I don't know. It's got, it's got a couple of really classic ones. Yeah, yeah. Now yeah, I'm much more familiar with with Fragile. That's why I get. Is, is it? I'll have to check that out. More closely, um, yeah. Fragile, fragile is definitely, uh, definitely on the more like what you would totally consider to be like prog right, rock. Right, that's what I'm associating. The the the, the, album, the album has a lot more. Um, it's uh, Bill Bruford plays drums on it. I think he does on fragile too, but his drumming on uh, the S album is very non-intuitive. Or like it's like listen to it. I mean, you listen to it now, and I've heard it so many times, it makes sense, but, like, back then he would do stuff where he would be playing, you know, where you'd expect to hear the two and the four, he'd be, you know, switching them around, so it'd be, like, huh. the, the four and then the two, so, like, basically playing the beat backwards. Right. Well, that's, it's and funny, so, like, that, that, kind that, of stuff, I think. that's something I always noticed about your playing, when we, back when we would play together, and I, I you've, you've definitely taken it to another level since then, but, um, is you'll, you'll flip the beat around in all sorts of unpredictable ways, you know, within a, um, whatever kind of structure you're working in and you'll, you'll create a whole completely unpredictable set of, you know, um, you know, putting a snare where you do. I mean, there's always, I remember it was this thing you used to do, which I, I always got a kick out of. And I, I thought you'd got it from, from, um, uh, Billy Martin, but maybe, maybe it goes back further. Is you you know you'd establish a groove and then you'd you'd do like a kick snare, like you'd typically expect it like a boom check, but it would be in a totally different place than the one and the and the three, you know, yep. and, and you'd like totally flip your head around. Like, <laughs> um, so is that but that so I always thought I always thought that was something you picked up from uh, Billy Martin, but you're saying that that kind of thing goes back further and maybe you know. Um, well, I think Billy Martin is sort of like the, seeing him for the first time, sort of brought all the different things that I loved about drumming, like, into a one-person context. Mm. Because, you know, sort of like, he, he was basically articulating all the different things that I'd been hearing in my life up until that point as a drummer. Mm. And so it wasn't, I mean, like, I mean, I, he was the first guy that I saw that like put it all together and it made, and it made sense and it was really fun to watch and like really inspiring. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely the ideas have been percolating for a long time with Flex and I didn't see those guys until like 95. So I would have been you know, like 20, 21 years old, something like that. 
Right, right. So, so up to that point, so you were, you were playing in the basement. You played with some guys in high school, um, and then you went to Simon's Rock. But that was, Simon's Rock was like still high school age, right? You, that wasn't. That was like pre college. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I never actually graduated from high school, so okay. Simon's Rock doesn't require. Um, they don't require a high school diploma to go, to be uh, accepted there. Uh-huh. And so I finished my junior year of high school, kind of having some problems at home, and I just really wanted to get away from my parents and just, like, you know, start just doing my own thing. Uh-huh. And they were brave enough to let me leave. And then essentially, like, when I moved out east, before I turned, I did turn 17 in September, my first year at Simon's Rock. But I basically left home when I was 16 hmm. in the late summer. And then started Simon's Rock. Went there for two years. You know, obviously came home for like Christmas and for the summer and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, when I was at Simon's Rock, too, there's another kind of major thing because my music teacher there, John Myers. Um, I took a lot of, I mean, they, you know, I was only there for two years and I got an associate's degree, mm-hmm. but they were pretty flexible as far as like what classes I could take, um, you know, requirements. So I took a lot of music classes. Mm. Uh, I took theory, and I took uh, jazz improv, jazz big band. Um, how how yeah, were you as a, as a music classes. student? Um, I was pretty terrible at theory because <laughs> okay. I didn't really, but right. I was a different teacher. Um, he was, was a great teacher, Larry Wallach, but, um, I didn't really, uh, uh it wasn't my thing. I think I probably got, I think I got like a C. I think it was my worst, my worst grade that I got at Simon's Rock. Um, but the, the jazz classes were great because there were so many awesome musicians that were in it and that sort of expanded my you know, knowledge of like different people playing different styles of music. And one of the cool things about John's music, John Myers' music classes was that instead of doing sort of like, I mean, we did some standards, but um, we did a lot of compositions that he had written, mm-hmm. it's like his tunes, like arranged for big band. And they were like, by no means easy songs. They were like just crazy time signatures, um, kind of like throwing a kid in a swimming pool and being like, okay, see if you can swim kind of stuff. Um, but it really, really cool music too. But I think that sort of learning sort of like, you know, big band kind of stuff with this kind of like wild music was, was also pretty formative for me too. How big a music program was that? Yeah. Was there, were, were you the only drummer or were, were you competing with, with other guys? Um, there was, there was like, in, when I was there, there was one other drummer. Mm-hmm. Who is now like a pretty uh, well sought after amazing musician named uh, Shazad Ismaili? Huh. You know, you know Shazad? No. No, he's uh, he he's just a New York dude, but he plays with pretty much everybody. And then he's done like uh, he's got a band with Mark Ribot. Um, he's produced a bunch of records for like. Jolie Holland and Bonnie Prince Billy and he's just like when he started at, at The Rock too, he was playing drums he had never played drums before huh. And but it turns out that he actually went to bass and he's like just the most insane bass player but he, he basically is like a he can play anything yeah. you know so but, um, then you did, but then uh, some of the other yeah. guys yeah what you saying yeah some of the other guys 
I was going to say some of the other guys in Como Zoo were in the jazz program too, and that's kind of how we met. Uh-huh. We all had different like little band band projects that we were doing outside of the school programs, like rock bands or punk punk bands or whatever. Um, so Como Zoo didn't actually start playing any kind of music as the four of us until like our last year there, which would have been I don't know early '91, I think. Hmm. And then then did you go? You went to New Paltz. Were you in the music part department at New Paltz? Um, no, I didn't take I didn't take any music there. Because <laughs> uh, I, I took a year uh, I took a year off, and um, one of my friends who was in Komozu with me was going to Bard College for his second two years, hmm. and so I kind of um, after the let's see. After two years of San Jose, I got my degree, came back to Minneapolis for the summer, worked all summer, I saved up enough money to buy a van, a Volkswagen bus, of course. Mm-hmm. And then um, that fall, I drove out to the East Coast, right around school was starting to go see the dead, because the dead were playing at the uh, at the old Boston Garden. Right. They're doing like a six show run there, and I back in those days I had to basically to get tickets for that concert. You had to send in uh, a money order, and then if you won the lottery, if you basically you know if your if your ticket got picked, then they would send you tickets. Huh. And if they didn't, they'd send you money. If you didn't, they'd send you money back. Um, but I wound up getting tickets to three of the shows at the the old Boston Garden, and. Uh, so basically, I went to go see the dead for three shows, but then I wound up just staying out there. And I lived out of my van until the winter. Um, and then I had to get a job because I was running out of money. And then after a year of sort of living like that, um, you know, I found places to crash, obviously. And after, you know, not even a year of that, but like about the spring, I was like, man, I need to go back to school. School is awesome. <laughs> And so, like, where can I go to school? It's around here. And, you know, I sort of did some research and checked out New Paltz and went through the whole application process and got accepted. And, yeah, I basically did it all by myself, too, which was kind of cool. But why did you decide not you know, to study the music there? Um, I think because I realized that I, did, I, don't, I don't know. It's not... I don't really know why I didn't. I mean, I guess it's probably because I thought the what the kind of music that I was into or that I was playing at the time didn't require learning more, like from a from a the program. Right, right. Like I felt like I was learning enough by by actually experiencing it and playing and learning from other musicians. Yeah. Which in retrospect, I mean, that, that you know, that's not necessarily true, but from you know whatever, 22-year-old who's, you know, like, you know, kind of a little bit of an ego or whatever, and just like, <laughs> I could do this, you know. But you, but so, so then in, but in New Paltz, you were playing a lot, though. I mean, you were playing with Como Zoo. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, okay, in any kind of jam situation, I mean, like, we did those, a lot of improv nights at the, uh, Cabusa and Griffin, and, yeah, I mean, I was, or just jamming people's houses, House parties. Uh, yeah, I probably play, probably play music at least two or three times a week. Everything. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think I when I remember from that around, around when I when I came around that that you 
you were very open to just trying different things and, and playing with different people. I mean, has that, has that been your, your kind of, did you, um, that's been kind of your approach all along, it seems. You're just kind of gaining. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that I, think that I have so much to learn from other people. And, you know, that's, that, is, that has been my approach as far as even doing all my solo, quote unquote, solo stuff is that, you know, every dash record that I have, there's like, you know, lots of different players on each one. Um, generally from Minneapolis, but sometimes people that are from out of town that have come on tour or whatever can record them playing some stuff and then use that. But it's kind of like taking their contributions and sort of tweaking them or editing them in such a way that sort of changes what, um, maybe changes their intent or changes the intent to what my intent uh -huh. is. I don't, I don't really know, but it's just but I you know, the people that I play with. You're, talk, you're talking about taking archived yeah. recordings and remixing them in your, in your world, in the Dosh world. Uh, exactly, yeah. Or not even that so much, but if I have, you know, it, it, the approach is never the same, but uh, one example would be sort of like if I'm trying to think of a good example, like a lot of the Dosh record, like the second, let's see, like the Lost Take and Wolves and Wishes, like those two records, um, they came out like 2006 and 2008. But like, so those, those ones were, I basically had sort of like that tracks already made of like drums and keyboards and synthesizers and arpeggiators and sequences and stuff like that. So I got the tune sort of like, or got the tunes plural to like a certain point. Mm -hmm. And then I was start to hear other musicians like, I want to get Jeremy on this tune. So I'd call Jeremy, build a soccer, and he'd come over here and I'd just be like, hey, can you play a guitar on this tune? I don't know what, what you should play. And he would just take a few passes would at he it. Over, he'd overdub on what you'd already done or you'd, do, you'd like set the loop going live and then you'd kind of do a thing together? I would, well, it was already like a, it was already like a, a track in, in Pro Tools. Okay, okay, so okay. Would, you know, or, or like, a, it would already be like, you know, whatever. 16 tracks already recorded. And if you would add some guitar and then, you know, well, you, spend a couple hours, but not really think about it too yeah. much, just kind of do stuff. And then I would then edit the crap out of what Got you it. did yeah. and use that to the final, you know, use the stuff that I liked. So, but then I, I guess the point was sort of like, I, you, for the most part, didn't necessarily tell people what to play. Right, right. It was just kind of, you know, what are you, what are you hearing here, you know? You know, not really giving a lot of direction, just being like, play what you think sounds good, and then I will figure out what is working and what's not. Well, that re that record, Wolves, um, Wolves and Wishes, I, I spend that a, a mm -hmm. lot. I mean, when I when I want to, so when when I want someone to hear something that they like that will blow their mind, I usually drop the, you know, when the uh, wait till the needle drops. I usually put that, which is perfect on, on right. vinyl. Yeah, it usually, that's like, uh, I was like yeah. you've never heard this before, have you? And then, you know, it's like a great, um, yeah. That's, that's, I mean, so, so a track like that, I mean, I'm just jumping because I, I still want to get to your, the, the transition from when you went, moved back to Minneapolis. But I just, when you have a track like that, so that, that kind of like, it just comes in like gangbusters right at the beginning. I mean, you're obviously, you're, you're building that as loops and then you... Um, 
you know, and then you record it already, or, or that's multi-tracking. That that's no, not what you do live. Like that, yeah. I mean, that track, for example, there's a lot of like pretty much a lot of the tracks that you hear that have uh, like a sequencer. Yeah, I could have a sequencer. Yeah, um, yeah. Whatever. Um, so basically, like that track was built by me writing that sequence, which is only like, I don't even know how many notes it is. It's probably like, it's probably like two bars right. maybe. Maybe, maybe it's yeah, like two bar yeah. sequence. So basically what I would do is instead of making a loop out of it, like for that tune, I basically just, you know, messing with my sequencer, wrote that sequence, and then just recorded that into Pro Tools for whatever, four minutes, you know, typical song length. You know, I had that playing back, and then just try to figure out some chords in the piano that would go along with it. So, right. You know, figuring out what chords worked to my ear with that sequence, and then kind of building it from there. Uh huh. So, so, so that I think that I did the sequence, did the sequence, did the sequence first, then figured out the uh, piano slash Rhodes part, um, and then eventually, you know, took it into the studio. Um, and recorded the drums on it. And then at that point, then I started to just like flush it out and got, you know, some guitars on there and what we got the rock and spiel part. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, but yeah, that entire thing came from this one little 12 note sequence. So let know? me ask you an ignorant question. Um, what, so what, what's the difference between a sequencer and a loop? And a loop? I mean, you, you could do that sequence on a loop on a loop pedal right i mean you could play that on the keyboard and then it will, the loop will loop it the two bar phrase what what why is the sequencer like what is what does that do that's that's different than the looper the sequencer i think uh well, the one that i use is this old one called the ex 800 mm-hmm. is made by korg like back in the 80s and it's basically like a synth module too so you can basically just take any keyboard that has midi and use it to play the play the sequencer play the module uh-huh. Um, but the, the reason that I love that thing is because you can basically program, you can make a longer sequence too, like an 8 bar, 16 bar. I think you can put up to like 168 notes in there or something uh-huh. like that. Um, I don't know if they were that long. <laughs> but the reason I like it better than a looper is that once you have it inside, like if you program one, say the needle to drop one, mm-hmm. um, record that for four minutes. And you can, it's got a tempo knob on it, too. Uh-huh. So you can record a sequence really slow and not really have any concept of what it will sound like if it's twice as fast or three quarters as fast. Uh-huh. And so it, it, uh, it, it basically is just sort of like a easy way to place thing that you don't know that you can actually play at the time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So a lot, of the, a lot of the sequences are these really fast, you know, eighth note arpeggios that, you know, eventually I have to learn them when I'm live. Right. But when I'm writing them, um, it's much easier just to, like, record something in the flow and be like, oh, one of them sounds like if I speed it up. You know? Wow, okay. But not pitch yeah, it up, yeah, yeah. speed the just, tempo. Just increase the speed. Right, so, I mean, I, I have a, a loop yeah, pedal yeah. That, that it does, like, a half time or a double time, but this gives you much more control than just that, you know. 
you could yeah, and, and, and also like I love the I love the tones in it too. The tones are very very eighties, and I think that probably goes back to my yeah, <laughs> you know, love of eighties music and just the some of the keyboard sounds back then are. are pretty dated but yeah i don't know i think that there's a lot of really good ones too. okay so we're in the i could ask you like a million questions on, on this particular topic i hope i want to get back to it, but i want i want to go back to um i mean on everything that you do you know your your art um but but i want to go back to when you first left you you know returned to minneapolis because that because that to me that's like you know you you like basically i mean within a couple of years you know you really started making things happen like creatively and then you know, obviously, with with getting some uh, attention and and building a career, so I, I you know I'd love to to hear from you what you know what happened. So you you came back to Minneapolis. Did you have a sense of what the scene was like over there? Did you have a sense like I'm going back and I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle this scene. I'm gonna get involved in this scene, or was it more just like I have no idea what's gonna happen. Let me just you know um, move back home and, and figure it out. Well, no, I mean I think that part, I think part of the reason that I moved back or that. I knew there was a definitely a scene that was happening because I would come back, you know, you know, at least every, at least once or twice a year. Um, so definitely for the holidays, um, you know, come home from like Thanksgiving until Christmas or, you know, for a couple weeks in the winter. So I was, I was aware that there were things that were going on. Mm-hmm. I still had friends in Minneapolis. Um, so I knew there was definitely some, some cool music that was happening here. But I didn't really know, I didn't really know any of the people that were involved in any of it. Mm. I had some friends that were sort of tangentially knew some of the bands that would play. Mm. So I'd go out and see these few bands when I came back, and I was like, you know, this is kind of cool. Uh, but then when I when I moved back in '97, um, let's see, so one of the first shows that I saw was um, would have been '97. It was uh, this place called Lee's Liquor Lounge, and um, it was a really awesome show. But it was so the, the three bands that played on the bill was uh, Atmosphere at first. I'm not sure if you know them, but they're like a, you know the biggest hip hop band in Minnesota's uh-huh. history. Yeah, I've, I've heard the name. Yeah. Back then, they were the first of three. Yeah, back then they were the first of three, and they were really good. And then uh, Happy Apple played second. And that was a band with uh, Mike Lewis on saxophone um, and Dave King on drums. And then the last band is Casino Royale, which is just kind of like instrumental hip-hop kind of stuff with Rhodes and uh, John Keston on Rhodes, Eric Fratsky on bass, and Eric Bolin on drums. And so all these different people sort of like would wind up playing like a pretty major part of my yeah. life. Um, but I didn't really know that time, but I was like, wow, you have like this, this bill where you have this like, you know, two piece rap group playing first. Really mm-hmm. good. The second band is this like freaky chamber jazz, <laughs> happy apple stuff, you know, that mm-hmm. band. And then the third band is like instrumental hip hop stuff. I was like, if this, if this is tough to sort of coexist. Right, right. In the same scene, this is really, really interesting and yeah. cool. And, and there was no like, you know, it was sort of like there wasn't really any divided lines or boundaries between all the different genres that were happening in Minneapolis. Right. 
So I think that was kind of cool. Um, but I, yeah, I just started basically trying to play with anybody that would play with me. So, you know, I put up, made some signs and flyers and put them up around town saying, drummer looking to start band, you know, listing my influences on it. Who, so who would you list in, in that flyer? What, what, what did that, if you recall, some of what that flyers, you know, listed in terms of influence? Oh, I, 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 I everything I've already everything you mentioned already. But, okay, but it'd be yeah. like more, yeah, all that stuff, but like fun stuff mostly, like not the meters, James Brown, Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, just to kind of. And ask him out in the wood. Did blah, you blah, get blah. calls from that flyer? But to that, um, I think I got a few, but it, it actually happened sort of more by kind of just running into people. I mean, I can't even remember how that first. So, like, and all along the same time, so, like, I'm, you know, back in Minneapolis, living in my parents' house, trying to pay off my student loans from new pops, and uh, just obsessively recording, like, all the time. So I had a casket in 424 mm-hmm. and I would record I would record stuff pretty much every day so mm-hmm. I was amassing you know song after song after song on cassette and then mixing it down uh, and then driving around town in my car listening to the stuff and you know some of those tunes became songs that I would eventually you know, either turn into dash tunes like way down the road, or uh, so the, the first band that I sort of started that was my own thing in Minneapolis was Nasty Go, uh-huh. and that was me, uh, my friend uh, Tony on bass, and then uh, my friend Hero on roads. But I had written all these tunes, so you know, I was just playing drums. So I had to teach Hero all these tunes, and you know, that was like sort of like. I guess kind of a Medeski-ish. Um, and then that band sort of morphed. Different players came in. Um, a lot of the same tunes, but then eventually it was um, me and my friend Brock Olson on guitar and my friend Dan Cords on sax. And so that was by like, that was happening by like probably 90. I guess I did more at that point by like 99. And I was still doing other bands too. So let, let me ask you, so... so... You know, just coming from someone, I mean, you, you knew me back, you know, around that time, right before, you know, I mean, something that, that I think over the years, I've kind of figured this one out, but I know, I know a lot of musicians who, who kind of struggle with the, the desire to want to be deeply involved in music on a regular basis and the skills and, and the ideas, but something, you know, I don't know what it is, that sometimes there's like a sense of, Something that stops them from, I mean, it's, it's not a common thing that you have someone who's just um, prolifically working, you know, day in, day out, you know, pounding away at the music, playing here, playing there, recording, you know, coming up with ideas, writing. Like, did you ever have a struggle with that or, or is that just, it's just flowed out, flowed naturally? Or did you ever make a point where like, listen, I'm going to, I love this and if I'm going to do it, I'm going to go all in? Yeah, no, definitely. I definitely did. I mean, I think probably because, you know, I first started playing around town in, like, the 90s doing my three-piece band I was talking about, Nasty yeah. Goat. Like, we did some shows here and there, and it was kind of like, you know, not like getting a following or anything like that, but it was, it was fun to do. But 
but I began to get very frustrated. Um, and this is before I sort of pulled in headfirst with like my solo stuff. So this would have been like probably around like, I don't know, maybe like 2000 or something like that. Right. But um, yeah, I, I, I got a little bit depressed. Um, my aunt died. Hmm. My uncle had died that year. Um, and yeah, I was, I was, I was frustrated. I was like, you know, I, I wanted, I want to do more, you know? So how'd you pull yourself out of that? Uh, um, I really don't know. I mean, I used to, I mean, I don't, I don't do it anymore. I used to journal a lot, mm-hmm. um, could write to myself, but, uh, I, t- I took a trip with, um, my brother who was, uh, getting his PhD, um, from, uh, Berkeley in political science. And he was doing his research down in Peru. And so we did, uh, we took a trip down there. I don't know what the hell you, but he was probably, it was in 2001. It might have been, I think it was like, two, I think it was like 2000. Because it was before 9-11. So, um, so we took a three-week trip, uh, me and him. And we flew down to Lima and then sort of just like, essentially just backpacked around the country and went to, you know, all different places in, uh, in Peru. And the, we went to Machu Picchu, right. to, to Cusco, and I took the train to Machu Picchu. And uh, have you ever been there I, I never have, Machu no. Picchu? I'd love to go someday. Um, but anyway, so that, yeah, that was like, so we basically timed it out so we would spend the whole day there and just kind of do our own thing. Um, so we stayed in Soul Town. It's kind of, I don't know, like three miles from there, and then you can take a, you can take a bus to get up there because there's all these crazy switchbacks. It's like straight up in the air. Um, and we spent the day there, and I sort of spent a lot of time by myself just kind of walking around and just sitting out and looking out. And it's the most, it's definitely the most incredible place that I've ever mm. been to. But it has like this sort of like, kind of energy emanating mm-hmm. from it. And I, I, remember, I don't know where I still have it, but I remember sitting down, like, climbing over the edge of the fence, kind of sitting on the edge of the sort of grassy cliff where the drop-off is really far. I don't know, like, a thousand feet or something like that. That wasn't, like, any danger. It wasn't, like, going to hurt myself, but it was just a beautiful breeze blowing. It was, like, a sunny day. But I sort of sat down, and I remember writing to myself, that like, you know, everything's going to be all right. You know, hmm. you know, people value you or people, people respect you. You know, you you don't have to earn anybody's respect. You know, you already have something. And, and it was just, I don't know. It wasn't like. Yeah, I'm here. That. I'm here. Yeah, I'm just I'm like, <laughs> this is powerful. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a moment. You got like epiphany. Yeah, but it was, like it was a, just, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was just like it was just like I just felt all of a sudden like some sort of weird calm come up, you know. And I was just like, "Wow, this is this is actually all right." Um, and then yeah, I think I think part of the thing too that that one of the reasons why I was sort of struggling and and this is sort of like you know with any you know aspiring musician or jazz musician or whatever it has is sort of the 
the need to always compare yourself with other musicians uh-huh. and to sort of to grip, you know, grade people where you, know, you go see someone and be like, I could smoke that guy. Right. You know? Well, that guy and that guy, you know, kind of. And part of this is because I was, you know, been studying with Dave King for a couple of years. And Dave's only a couple of years older than me, but it's just like, because drums is something that, that, even though I was practicing like three hours a day, was something that was never going to sort of like overcome. Right. So, I, and I sort of realized that, and this is what he's actually been telling me all along, is that. You know, whatever I have to put out there is unique to me, and that is more important than trying to uh, not necessarily emulate somebody else. But it's more important to—it's more important than anything—to just realize that what you have inside of you is bigger than you know. Saying that, like, you know, I can't do that drum fill if that guy just played, or I can't play that guitar lick. It's sort of like, and so that was kind of this, this I don't really know where it came from, but it totally changed the way that I thought about music. And then when I got home, I just kind of went all in and started working on a first Dash record and just, you know, got really into the idea of like, I mean, I have to make a record that represents who I am hmm. and just get it out to the world and see what people think of it. And, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to pay for it, but... You know, I borrowed a little bit of money from my parents, and I, uh, you know, made the CD, sell the art for it. I was working at a monastery school at the time too, so I had lots of parents I could sell this CD to, and and it was just the, you know, the amount of response that I got from that first CD was just insane. I mean, it was like, you know, everybody in Minneapolis had a copy of it, and. It was, it was cool. That's, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, I, so, I mean, but you, so, I mean, that whole, <laughs> I mean, that's, it's like almost like you resolve a certain question and that it almost, free, it almost freed you of a certain burden. I mean, it sounds like in the process of making, because I would ask you, let's say, it's almost like I, when you got, when you were making that, that first, uh, those first tracks, that first album, and, it, you know, it, it sounds like a pretty, much got a response like right out of the gate but you'd already kind of resolved in your kind of in your heart that that, that was whatever was going to happen it was going to be okay you were putting it out so it's almost like I, I feel like I want to ask you like okay so how do you deal with the um you know putting out an album that that it seems like very few people are interested in but it's almost like you answered that question already because you kind of resolved it before you even did that you know what I mean it's like that. That's a common question yeah. I, well, yeah, yeah. I encounter. I, mean, I, I know. I know a lot of guys who, who have recorded, yeah, I mean, I you know, recorded, and like they poured their heart and soul into music, and then it's like, okay, now what? Like I, I you know, no, I, there's not. You know what I mean? Not, what? What next? You know, I'm not gonna. There's not like I don't know how to get it out there. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah. I mean, well, I think that the actual recording of the, you know, releasing that record. Um, also made me sort of try to figure out how to play the stuff right. live because I had to sort of translate the recording into live stuff. And I'd only been doing the looping at that point for maybe like a year. So I think my, my first live show, I think was like, I don't know, February or March of 2002. And then uh, the record came out like in June of that year. 
and I get a release show for mm. it. And uh, in the release show, I basically had I had a band playing with me, and I think I only did one or two songs by myself solo. And they were, they were, I mean, I have a recording of it. I haven't listened to it in years, but it's not that great. <laughs> um, but just sort of. I want to sort of exactly have buzz about like, okay, I can, this is how I can translate this music into, you know, a one-man thing. And then it was sort of became like back to the, to like learning mode or like figuring out how this recording can be sort of adapted to, you know, me with the drum set and the roads and so, so the looping came as a response to the need to be able to play it live. It wasn't, the, the, the original recordings weren't, Looped. I mean, besides like in Pro Tools or whatever, you you weren't doing live loops in the original recordings, were you? No, there wasn't any, there wasn't any Pro Tools on the first two. Oh, okay. At all. Um, but, so the, yeah, the first one is recorded through like eight track eight app. Okay. In the basement, um, there are some loops on it, but not um, for the most part. It's played. It's not like I'm not not looping drums on it or anything like that. So, so, so the so the looping came. So you, it was like an answer to a, a like a like a problem that you had how to how to play that stuff live. I mean, it was basically a utilitarian solution, rather than like getting a band, let's say, to play all different yeah. parts. You just because you played them all yourself to begin with, you're just like limit, you know. So, um, so then then but then you started playing shows. Was was it the, the record got some response? You started playing some show, a lot of shows solo, or how did how did that start take? How did the solo thing take off? Um, let's see. Well, so next time that it came out, I was playing in a band called Fog. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been playing with those guys since about two thousand. Um, and then my friend Andy Broder, uh, who the leader of Fog, wrote all the tunes. He got signed to a record deal in 2002 when they put out his record. And so we were able to start doing some touring mm-hmm. with that. And so for that, for some of those early tours, like I would open the shows doing the solo mm-hmm. dash set. And so some of my earlier, you know, earliest experiences have been playing that stuff on the road. And through that, through Andy, I met all the guys from the Anticon record label. Um, they were, we did a show with a bunch of those guys and I handed everybody on their tour bus like a DAS CD so that was just kind of in that consciousness since it had been the fall of 2002 or yeah like yeah fall of 2002 and then uh, one of the guys from Nights kind of was out and they had to do a show in like mm-hmm. December and he was like hey man um, I think Nights kind of wants to put out your record I was like what? <laughs> And so that was sort of how that happened. So I basically had, you know, I redid a couple tunes on the first Ash record just to remix a few mm-hmm. things. And then they put it out the following fall. So it came out on Hanscom in like September of 2003. Had they heard your, your live thing then, when, when they signed you? Or the, it was just on the, on the record? Uh, yes, so. yeah. Yeah, they, they didn't see me play, I think, mm-hmm. once or twice. But by the, by, the, by the time that they put it out, I had been playing like a lot of solo shows, so I had my act more or less together. So, so, so tell me about the, when you when you go to play a show, your you know solo show. I mean, you know, or or even just a set opening up. I mean, sometimes so some of the early days it was like a band that you were in, and then you'd play a solo set before. Basically, so. Mm-hmm. 
what, I mean, I get, you know, it's like the only thing akin to it, the experience of, of like showing up at a game. I mean, you have a lot of equipment. <laughs> it looks like, I mean, the roads, the drums, the, the, yeah. the mixers. I mean, you have so many pedals and cables and like, do, does it, does that get part get overwhelming? Do you hire somebody? Do you have, you know, especially in the early days, like how were you schlepping all that stuff? <laughs> like, I mean, technically how did it, how are you able to stay motivated with keeping them? You know, I mean, obviously at the end of the tunnel was like, you're up there and you're making this, you know, amazing music that you've, that you've created that's very unique. But like that whole process of like setting up and breaking down from someone who, you know, deals with it, you know, roads on a regular basis. Yeah, I, 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 that's, that's a really, that's a really good question. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, it's, it's kind of insane. Yeah. But like you said, I think that's actually the deal is because like having all those options is, uh, totally necessary and once I'm actually on stage in front of people and I have the ability and I know what I'm doing with all the different you know the mixture on the roads and the synth and the memo track and the drums having all those possibilities in my fingertip makes it totally worth it because it's you know if I miss even just one thing it can sort of make the, make the gig be challenging would you, would you in the early days you'd, you'd bring a PA also I mean you'd, you'd provide the sound often or, uh, no, I would usually just run, run, run out of the mixer and like. So usually you just you'd play in a place that already had so, a, had sound support. You you were you weren't playing, yeah, you weren't playing exactly. places yeah. that were just like a space where you you'd show up and and need it need to bring your own PA and okay. No. So that that so. No. Yeah. It, would, it would always be okay. And then, um, do you, would you hire someone or would or do you have friends come and help you with the, with the equipment or you often did it alone? Um, usually, I mean, by the time I was touring, like headline yeah. touring, I usually had uh, a person mm-hmm. with me, either a sound guy or another musician. Um, but in the days where I was, before I started doing headlining tours, um, I would, uh, you know, tell the guys in the, the main band would help, usually help me move stuff. But I think once I sort of figured out if I got a dolly, I could move the roads, and I could do it all by myself, too. It's not that difficult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Just, I mean, you have to take a bunch of trips from the car. <laughs> I guess in, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I'll, just, I'll just tell you, I, I, I've, I, you know, I've been gigging with the roads for years, and recently it just got to, you know, um, so I was looking for another option, you know, to be able to play more gigs, because it's like I'm also tearing up the Tolex every time I threw it into my car, or, you know. Um, and and I and I'd spend all this time like voicing it and everything, and then I'd come back from the gig and like I'd have to do it all over again. Um, so so oh, you know so I, you know so what I what I did it's a very recent thing for me. I've been a, like a analog purist for for years. I opened myself to up to digital, and I got this um, this Yamaha Reface. Have you ever heard of it? So that little module. I've heard of it. I it's an amazing sounding thing. I mean, I, I, I was getting ready to drop like 5,000 on a, on a clavinet. And then, I mean, which I'd like to at some point. But, oh. the, but then I got this little reface and it has incredible Rhodes um, modeling and like and like onboard effects. It's got a clavinet and like a Wurlitzer and it's just, yeah. And so I, I've, been, I've been gigging with that recently and I've been, um, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I draw a lot of inspiration from you, but, it, you know, the the... With the looping, I'm getting into looping a little bit, but the thing is, um, the yeah, just the that kind of commitment to taking all that equipment, especially in New York City, where you can't leave your car on the on the you know 
on the curb when, yep. without uh, worrying about you know. Anyway, it's, it's so that that was like a solution. I, I uh, but I admire you know I admire it. For, <laughs> like I have a unique perspective to, to that commitment to bring all that you know, oh, yeah. br- break it down late at night and you know. But uh, so I so who um, went so when you're when you're um, you just, I see you sometimes you use headphones. Um, I mean, oh, I always use you always so yeah. you always set up. I mean, but so a couple of questions I have about that, like that I've always wanted, to, I've wanted to ask you for a long time. So you you basically um, you, you lay down, let's say, an initial loop, or or sometimes you put it in, a, in like a delay pedal, or or sometimes in a in a sequencer, right? You have something going, but that that basically yeah. you play live, yeah. and at what point are what you're hearing on your headphones? And then what people, you know, out in the audience are hearing, like, what is the gap with that? Or, is, or sometimes you just feel comfortable, like, this is going straight out, you know, or, or you usually like, listen, hear it, mix it, and then, and then make it public. Like, how does that work when you're playing live? Um, well, basically, like, I mean, in a perfect world, uh, everybody in the audience would hear exactly what I'm hearing uh-huh. in my headphones. But sometimes, depending on the, you know, the ability of the sound guy to sort of you know, EQ stuff a certain way, or, you know, that can play some parts in it, but generally, like, when I, when I do a sound check, I sort of build up, a, you know, a loop of, like, drums and roads and things, and then go out in the audience and just see how it sounds uh-huh. out there. Uh, but for the most part, I mean, like, what I'm hearing in my headphones is the same thing that the people in the, in the house are hearing. Uh-huh. The reason I have the headphones is sort of I figured out after a while that by relying on monitors to hear the loops creates all kinds of problems uh-huh. because the, the proximity of all the drum mics to the wedges, uh-huh. um, if you're making a loop that has a, making a loop that has like ten layers yeah. on it, and so let's just say the particular room you're playing in, the bass drum frequency sort of resonates in the room, and so like you know you get ten loops in, the loop is engaged. That kick drum loop is going to start feeding back into Got itself. It. So when I pick out that I just to use headphones to minimize the feedback issue, that totally. Well, that's a revelation. Everything. So so it's not it's not at all so the test does. what you just recorded to to make sure it's it's meaning it's just to get the right mix in in your. Um, it's to get it's to get the right mix, but it's also for me to be able to hear the initial loop. So if uh, I can't hear the initial loop, which generally functions as a it functions as a, as a click track. Yeah. If I can't hear that with like utmost precision, uh, then the whole thing's going to sound okay. Crap. Okay, that's so. Okay, that clarifies a lot. So the other question I have is: sometimes I see you, and there's a great there's a great video of you at some college music college in in Minneapolis, or maybe it was in St. Paul. Oh yeah, right. So it was great, yeah. and you that you could really they had like cameras separate on your feet, like they they were like really really clued in on on getting a, a sense of what you were doing. So one, and then you like interviewed about it. So, yep. so one of the things that I noticed that, that sometimes you don't even click a lip loop pedal and you'll go and you'll set up a loop, like you'll sit at the drums and I never see you click anything and then the drums will be looping. Like, how does that work? You know, sometimes you'll like click a pedal, you'll play something and click it to stop the loop. Then sometimes you'll just sit at the drums, play something and then get up. I mean, maybe I'm just missing something. It looked I did like I looked carefully. I didn't see you step on anything before you started and when you stopped. Um, some of those 
loose. Yeah, well, it's, it's entirely possible that, I mean, sometimes if I'm playing live, I don't record it. But if you're hearing me play certain drums, then you immediately hear that same yeah. pattern back. That just means that the loop, that means the loop pedal's already engaged. So, and if the loop pedal's already engaged, then I don't have to click anything to get it to but start are you recording. Gonna, but I do have to click to it. Start, to start, you have to click. But then, but then don't you're going to have empty layers? You're not concerned about that. Let's say while you're while you're getting ready to sit down at the drums, no. and then it, that that's not a concern of yours, or is that or is that not what happening? What's happening? No, because I I wish I had a visual uh, example of what you're talking about because there's no way I can record live drums without actually engaging the boot pedal. I can play the drums. Um, over the top of what's happening without right. recording that. Sure. Um, but I can't, I can't, I can't loop anything if I don't engage it. You know. Oh, is it, is it possible there's a gap between you and you engage it when you sit down at the drums? Or or do you, or. So uh, what yeah. is that gap? What what's happening in that time? It's possible. Meaning, is it an empty is it an empty loop? Well, you know what I'm saying. Is it an empty layer? I mean, are you talking about are you talking about total silence? Is there anything happening? Meaning, meaning like let's no? say you have like you have a bunch of things going on, and you know I'd have to probably sit down with you and show you the video, or maybe I could try to describe it. So you have like a bunch of things going on, and then you get up, you sit down at the drums, you play you play a, a you know a, a couple of measures, a few measures, and then you get up. You never clicked anything sitting down. You never clicked anything standing up, and the drums are just looping. What you just played. That, that means that the loop, the loop pedal is still right, engaged. Right, so, so yeah. So it, it's engaged. But but you're not engaging it at the moment you're sitting at the drums. You engaged it before. So I guess what I'm saying is is so there's yeah, like that's, a that's like an empty layer essentially. Just so it'll be like recording an em- recording, yeah, and then when you yeah, sit down, you, you record the drums, then you get up. That's doing. An, so you're not those empty layers don't don't get in the way of of being able to control anything. They're just they're just there. Yeah. No, no. I mean, if, there, if there's like if there's like multiple empty layers, it would definitely be a problem. But uh, just one. Okay, would cool. Not be a okay, that's a lot. Okay, wow, that was really uh, insightful. Okay, so um, cool. So that then let me ask you to change the, the direction a little bit. I, um, so in terms of so the main theme, as I mentioned to you, of this podcast is um, is really about you know harmonizing life and music, and that you know. You have, you know, you have this, uh, you know, I know you have this amazing career. You have, you know, you're able to make music that's like really unique and creative in your own way. And, uh, and it, it's, you know, it's an incredible thing. And you also, I understand, you know, you're, you're married and you have, you have kids and, um, you know, and that, and that so I'm, I'm very, I don't know how often you get asked about, about this, about balancing these things, but in terms of, um, you know, how, do you ever... How does that work for you? Like, do you ever come in, in conflict with being able to, um, you know, be there for your family? Because I know I was just preface to say that there, that a lot of people I've been talking to either fall on one extreme. Like, either they're devoted to music and that's their priority. They're devoted to creativity, and they and they're like, a family is just not an option for them. Or and if there is, they they basically leave it. <laughs> in order to pursue the music, you know, if they've already been married or something. And then the other yeah. extreme is you have people who are like, well, I'm devoted to my family. I don't have time for the music. I, you know, like that, that I just had to let it go. And I, and I, and I feel like 
it's very unique and it's something that I aspire to. And I know other people that I'm talking to that, that you know, of the listeners of this, uh, this podcast are interested in, in, in really having the best of both worlds. And just looking from the outside, it seems like you got, you know, you've, you've, you have that kind of integration and like, t- tell me, you know, what, from your perspective, what is it, how does that work for you? Um, I mean, it's, it's uh, incredibly <laughs> difficult. I mean, it's, you know, I've, you know, all the touring I've done over the last, whatever, 15 years, um, it's, it's really challenging. You know, I've missed a lot of really, really cool stuff with mm-hmm. my kids growing up in order to, you know, help the family, support the family. Um, but I mean, luckily I have a wife that's incredibly supportive. Um, and, you know, she understands what I did and why I did it, and she knew that getting into it. So, but yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no question it's a challenge. And I mean, it's the older that I'm getting, and it's still, it's still a challenge. And it's, not, it's not something that ever gets easier unless you're like one of those one in a million guys who write a hit song and just live on that for the rest of your life. Right. I'm, I'm sure even that guy that has, has his challenges too. <laughs> So, so mm-hmm. you think you feel like the most challenging thing is is missing important uh, events when you're on the road, um, or just even transitioning from being in you know play 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 music mode to being at home family mode. Right. So how how do you do and, uh, that? Do you have like a uh you know kind of a, a ritual or a set of uh, you know, thoughts that, that kind of get you back to being a dad and, you know, being a husband and, and you know, from being a rock star, you know, like, I mean, is that, is that, yeah. Not, I mean, I don't, I don't say that, I, I don't think that I do. I mean, I haven't really done much major touring since probably 2013. Uh-huh. So I spent way more time, way more time around the house, uh, in like the last three and a half mm-hmm. years or so. Um, but yeah, I don't, really, I don't think I do. I mean, I, I really liked all the different routines that I have around the house. So, like, you know, just simple things like taking my dogs for a walk every day, especially when mm-hmm. it's nice out like this. Um, you know, doing the yeah, dishes, yeah. <laughs> making, making dinner for everybody. Um, just kind of like stay-at-home dad stuff, I Would guess. Would you make a know. schedule? My you, wife. Your wife works, works. yeah. Yeah, she yeah, she's got a job at a distillery. She's a, she distills oh, cool. spirits. So she's she's had that job for a couple of years now, which is great. So uh, do, do you do you make like a, a, ske- yeah, a schedule? That you mean meaning like let's say you have an unstructured time at home, and you get an inspiration. You want to you want to go in and mm-hmm. practice or or record or, or write. You know, do you set aside specific times? So I mean, I'm just speaking from my own experience that I know my wife likes clarity you know and, and if I ju- if, if you know we're just hanging out at home and I'm like I'm, I'm gonna go right you know it's like well you know let's let's work this out so you know what I mean you're home now you know like so I mean do you have that kind of freedom to, to pursue your muse in the moment or do you make a schedule like this is my my creative time and this is time I'm, I'm taking care of you know I'm at home or hanging out or taking care of responsibilities I definitely don't schedule. I, de- I definitely don't schedule it at all. I mean, it's like I, I actually haven't been doing that much solo recording or mixing, or editing probably for the last 
Ja, men det vet jag. Nej, nine months or so. Um, at, right. at my house, but in general, like you know, for the first we've been in this house for hmm. almost 15 years, and so like for the first first whatever 12 years, it's pretty much like you know, kids go to bed around 10, you know, parents go to bed around the same time, and then. But that's when I would work. So I basically work in the basement and everybody else is sleeping until, you know, three in the morning or something like that. And then get up the next day. So you, you basically, you ba- you're, so your yeah, solution is basically you find time when nobody is up. <laughs> I mean, that, that was basically the, when you, how you do it. It's just the, whenever, whenever the, yeah, the house is right. quiet and you can, but are you. And if I had to record drums or something like that, I'd, you know, wait till a, appropriate time during the day right, right. louder <laughs> okay and um do you uh you know so in, ter- in terms of um you know has has it ever been an issue in terms of like uh i mean i know you i know you've you know been doing pretty well over the years but you know in terms of um making other income or you know pressure to do things other than the music that's just close to your heart um, or, or you kind of, you kind of have that, yeah. Um, definitely, that definitely has, I mean, much more so in the last three years since I hadn't been playing with Andrew Bird. Uh, but that was like, you know, yeah. bread and butter from like 2005 till 2013. Um, so that had the loss of that income has definitely been very challenging. I mean, it's tough too, because you know, being a musician too, just, even just getting royalty stuff has been is always kind of pulling teeth to get paid for stuff that you should be getting paid for. So it's kind of like I don't know. Yeah, it's, it definitely has been challenging. Well, for how sure. much time? How much time uh-huh. do you put into like business end of your uh, of your career? Uh, not enough, <laughs> but not enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of the kind of person that like is not very good at initiating conflict or attempting right. to avoid conflict. So um, it's kind of hard to be a jerk, you know what I mean? And sometimes in order to get paid, you have to kind of be, put your foot down and be like, look, you know. It's, it's yeah, just. like negotiating a different year. But I mean, I, I, I think in general, just like, those sort of seem that when things are get, you know, dire or whatever, like something always comes through, projects or something recording opportunity or so I don't know I just kind of I don't know I just kind of have faith that this is what I'm supposed to be doing it's what I'm supposed to be doing but I've definitely been thinking about um, like what I could even do at this point I mean you know, I'm almost four or five like what if I wasn't going to be a musician if I was going to do that full time or whatever like what would right. I actually do and that's <laughs> That's another challenge because it's like, what do you, you know, be a postman or something like that, you know? Right, right. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I love that. I mean, that attitude is, it's, I mean, it, it strikes me and I, you know, as a kind of, as a very strong, like a faith, I mean, not to bring in religion or anything, but just, just, just like a faith, uh, almost like a faith in, in, in the workings of the universe, you know, let alone a higher power. It's just, just that, that it's, you know, th- if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, then I'm going to be taken care of. I mean, that, that attitude is strikes me as really healthy you know a healthy way to keep your mind in in the game and and not overly worrying about 
you know, things that, you know, most people worry about. You know, like, um, yeah, well, no, I mean, I, the best thing, though, is that I do worry about all uh, other stuff, too. And it's just sort of, it's, I don't know. It's tough, man. It's, you know, watching kids go up and just, whether it's, you know, could have done things differently or, I don't know, all the different things that go with getting older, I guess. But, I mean, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to be alive and being yeah. here right now. So. How, how old are your How old are your kids? So my stepson Tag, um, he is uh, mm-hmm. 18, and uh, his dad lives in North Minneapolis. So he moved. Tag moved in with his dad about a year, uh-huh. a little more than a year, year ago, maybe like a year, year and a half ago. So he hasn't been around our house. Um, it's kind of a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a bad thing, but that's kind of necessary. Um, he's doing really good. Got a girlfriend. We just saw the Father's Day. We had a nice dinner over at Aaron's folks' house. And then my son Nisha just finished uh, seventh oh, wow. grade. He's thirteen. Um, he's doing good too. He's just kind of got unstructured summertime this summer. So. Yeah, he's got one more year junior high, and he's out in high school. Wow, that's you know I I, uh, so I I I had this question for you though. It's probably it's probably hasn't been relevant for you for a number of years, for when the kids were much younger. But I was just driving in the car with my my two year old, so I have I have a two year old and a one year old. Yep. And I also have a I have a stepdaughter who's sixteen, and then. And then two, and the two, two older boys, uh, who's fourteen and almost thirteen. But then, so what my question is, um, just as a, as a musician involved in, you know, some pretty, you know, some pretty hip music, some pretty, you know, great. So my kids <laughs> love, you know, the mu- the music they want to listen to is, you know, is oh, like yeah. the, the most popular song is like there's like a the duck song is one of the most popular ones, and then <laughs> there's like. This Spanish song, it's like this uh, reggaeton song about a about a little chicken. But the, you know, so do you? Do you? I mean, I, it might be going back a few years for you, but do you? Um, what's your? What's what was your? I don't, you know, approach to, to kids' music. Did you? Did you try to expose your kids to like the the um, you know uh, more high quality adult type music that they should get into, or or you kind of you also did the kid music thing and and just put up with it or, or got to enjoy it. What was your, if you recall? Yeah, I never really did the, I never really did the kid music thing. I mean, we would always have, we have a record player, we had a lot of records. Um, so we just played them stuff we like to listen to. So I mean, anything from, you know, Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell, uh, you know, I, I would, and I had a lot of CDs too, and Peggy and used to the CD player in there in the bedroom, so I would just, you know, put a stack of CDs in there when it was time to go to bed, so I'd, you know, pick a CD and put it on. They tend to like pretty cool stuff. I yeah. Mean, so, and they both liked, uh, when they're a little bit, but like to listen to toys oh, yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just sort of let them pick out what they wanted to listen to, you know? And what Misha really loves like, modern stuff that's happening right now. He's really into, like, you know, the American version of yeah. dubstep, like a year ago, some of the electronic stuff. Um, now he's getting really into hip-hop. 
Does it? Does he create? Is he? Does he play music? Does, no. Is he into that as a as a creator? Um, no, he's not. I mean, he's been playing off music for a while. Been really sick. Um, but I think he's, he definitely has a really good ear for stuff. So I don't really. I sort of hesitate to push him in any particular direction because I think that you know, if it's something he wants to do, he'd be really mm -hmm. good at it. Um, just let him discover it, or just yeah. making beats, or whatever. yeah. And then tag, you know, guitar lessons as well, so you can you can fumble on a guitar a little bit. He knows the chords, and that's something he wants to do. The guitar sitting around, he'll pick it up and move around on it. But um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, they certainly have a you know a role model for someone who can actually make some money doing it <laughs> they choose to go, go that route listen I, mean, I really really appreciate um you taking this time you know you're definitely one of my one of my heroes you know from um from when i first when i first got to hang out with you in, in new paltz and you definitely encouraged me it was uh an important foundational factor for me and i think you do convey that what you were saying before about coming out with something very unique to you, you know, and, and one of the things that I, that I, that I inspiration yeah. I draw from what you do is, is not necessarily to do exactly what you do, obviously, which I don't, you know, wouldn't even try it, but I, I but in more, more in the sense of, of, uh, you know, doing something totally unique. I mean, it, you know, that, that kind of no one's really done in that way before. And that, that itself is an inspirational yeah. thing. I just, uh, Wanted to let you know that. Thanks a lot, dude. I listen to your music. You know, it's 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 like a regular soundtrack for me. Sweet. Yeah, I mean that's that's the only reason that it exists. You know, it, it exists, or maybe the only reason why I exist is <laughs> to have already done that. I mean, it's kind of a challenging thing too, as far as like, you know, an inspiration strikes you or whatever, because it's I, I really just haven't felt the need to like in the last you know nine months or a year to really create my own more of my own stuff. I've been doing a lot of other playing with other people, playing drums, doing a lot of improv gigs. So I'm still playing music but it's more of a collaborative thing. And I just I don't know. I am just gonna kinda wait and see what the next thing and it's like every time you start a new project or a new record or whatever, it's like the same whatever insecurity or just the same frustration follows crop up as far as like sudden masses or you know, whatever. And, you know, so it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's like, I, part of me is like, well, I'd be totally happy. It's just, you know, all the stuff that I already put out there, but it's like, and there's definitely some more, some more on the tank. I just got to figure out what exactly it's going to be, you know? So. Well, man, again, I, I uh, really appreciate your time, and, I, and I, I hope to see you when you come east. You know, if not, then then uh, I'll have to I'll have Fine, to man. find an excuse to come out to the Twin Cities. Very good, man. Well, good talking to you too. Thanks, man. So so have a great day. Good luck with Longmore. You know, we'll be in touch. All right, All right. talk to you soon, man. Bye. Peace. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dash. I want to thank 
him again for being on the show and also for the Patreon supporters for making this possible. There's a lot to learn from the interview. I, I'm still processing it. It was a year since I recorded the interview. And his musical example, it, it is very unique. There's no other music like what Dash makes. And that's an inspiration enough to try to be like somebody else. Uh, you can you can only be a second-rate version of somebody else, but you can be the best version, the number one version of yourself, what you have to offer. And Dash really exemplifies that. And so I really appreciate him and his music for that. Uh, please check it out. The music that's been playing since the beginning of the podcast is a track from Dash's uh, album Wolves and Wishes. It's the song Don't Wait for the Needle to Drop. And uh, it's one of my favorite <laughs> my favorite tracks. I play it a lot. So I hope you enjoyed those little tastes of it. Go out and check that, the original track. Speaking of tracks, here at Sound Heights Records, we're regularly releasing new tracks and original videos that are accompanying them. Um, you can find all that at patreon.com slash soundheightsrecords. There will be links there to our YouTube page and SoundCloud pages. And really, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. The way it works is you set up a certain amount that you give us per release, but you can limit it to, let's say, even one release per month. So the minimum you could would give would be like $1 or $2 for the month. These releases include the podcast and the songs and videos that we're creating. Patrons also get access to a plethora of unreleased recordings, pre-releases, and have some other special surprises helping to support the work we do here and to, God willing, reach as many musicians and aspiring musicians as possible to help each other overcome inner and outer obstacles, to inspire each other, and keep the conversation going. Those who love playing music, love talking about music, thinking about music, at least uh, the ones I know. So you all are helping to get it done. Please feel free to contact me with any questions or thoughts at soundheightsrecords at gmail.com. I really enjoy hearing from you all about your thoughts on music and your personal experiences with your musical journeys. Remember, abundant singing and playing of music will bring about the true and complete redemption. See you next time.